Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. My framework is this is a long-term trend, right? We've got at least another decade in this. At least, probably two or three decades. But this part of it is going to continue to do very well, sure. Bitcoin over time as it gets more users, more adopted, it won't go up as much each cycle, but there'll be plenty of others and plenty of opportunities. So what we should be doing is using this, thinking of the money you've put in as your retirement money and writing it off. Um, And then just adding, if you've got money in a bear market. Now, the problem is, is most of us don't in a recession, but a friend of mine taught me very early on, he said, Well, there's a key thing I've learned is he who has cash in a recession is king. So that's that combination of income and opportunity. Raul Powell, welcome back to the show. It's fantastic to be back. It's been a while. It's been a minute, man. And circumstances have changed since we last (laughs) spoke. (laughs) And uh, I'm actually really excited to talk to you about things, given that you've got bankers predicting global recession, economists predicting global recession. Is there a way for people to really thrive in this time, in this you know, sort of moment of crazy disruption? Is there an opportunity or do we all just have to take a shot to the face? Well, it depends what we're talking about. Look, I mean, they've made it clear, the central banks and the government, that they want everybody to take a shot to the face. I, they want demand to go down. And I think that's already happening quite fast. Well, I've, people... heard that, I've heard that said. I don't understand. Demand for what? Stuff. So if they, raise your, if they put up your mortgage rates, you spend less in restaurants. If, you, if you're finding your food bills at the supermarket are 30% higher than they were, you spend less on something else, right? Why That's is called, that ever good? Because it stops the price of goods rising. So the price of goods moves either because there's not enough supply, which is what we've had a problem with, or it's because there's too much or not enough demand. So if you've got something with restricted supply, so let's think of oil right now, because of the Russian situation, there is not enough oil for the current demand out there. So the oil price keeps going up. So you and I pay more to drive our cars or to heat or cool our houses. So the only way of solving that one, because you can't get the Russian oil back into the market, is to make us buy use less oil. So that may, if you, the price does that automatically because it gets more expensive, we do it. But if you can also then just lower general demand 
for things. We'll drive our cars less, we'll catch less flights, all of that stuff. And that lowers demand and therefore prices because prices rising, inflation is evil for our savings because the dollar in your bank account is worth less in a year's time. It's currently worth 8% less, which is quite a lot. And so it's, it's that, it's this weird situation where we have to take the pain we're told we can't buy as much and we're forced into it by rising our mortgage costs and our food costs and all of this stuff. Um, and eventually things will slow down. People will be put out of jobs a bit, that kind of stuff. And then the overall demand in the economy comes down and prices come down. So I, we're all collectively taking the pain for this inflation that was created out of a whole bunch of different things from the pandemic through to um, supply chain issues, through to underinvestment in commodities, through to the shift to green energy. Um, all of these things have created this moment in time, which is tricky. And you know, if, if we relate it to, for example, the crypto market, uh -huh. so why did crypto stop going up? Well, it was macroeconomic factors and people are like, well, what's that got to do with crypto? Well, really simple is it's a retail-based market and about sometime last year prices started to rise and so people could afford to dollar cost average less so then there's less demand for crypto and the price of crypto falls it's as simple as that okay so uh that all sounds very simple and direct i think that what i wouldn't have understood a year ago obviously now being into this i have a bit more of a frame of reference but i like to think that uh what I'm able to help people with is sort of the 101 of like how all this stuff works. It feels like the, I always thought of the economy as a thing external to human forces in terms of intentional human forces as I was growing up. Now I'm beginning to realize that it, it is either rightly or foolishly the subject of a lot of human intervention. And so, I would have thought, perhaps naively, that the goal would be to let the market determine, like, if people are willing to pay more for oil, gas, whatever, then the price will rise to what people are willing to pay, and it just is what it is. And so inflation is going to be a, a thing that happens occasionally. It is if your wages go up to match it. If not, you're just getting poorer because you can afford to buy less stuff with, the, with, your, with your monthly paycheck. But why so, won't the market balance naturally? There, obviously, it, you're getting poorer, but theoretically, it, it can't just inflate forever because people can't pay. So it'll inflate until the amount of poor is like too much, and then people stop spending, exactly and right. then it rebalances. And that's called demand destruction. It's exactly the same process. So the Fed can engineer it by trying to raise interest rates, and it filters through to our mortgages and other stuff. Or the market kind of clears of its own accord where prices get too much, people stop buying stuff, prices fall back again. Um, so either way tends to work. And we're in this weird mess where the Federal Reserve are doing it, the markets are doing it, and we're having to take all the pain in the meantime. And is it better to engineer this? It seems like we at some point crossed a, a Rubicon and said, we're going to engineer the economy. We're not just going to let it run its course. Given how well you understand the macro landscape, do you think that is wise or would we be better taking a laissez-faire way, getting our hands off of it and just letting the market do what the market does? Um, I generally think that the market is better at doing it. If you actually see it, you know, from my perspective, somebody 
closely follows interest rate markets and stuff like that. They did all of the tightening anyway, before, well before the Fed. People like, you hear the expression, the Fed are behind the curve. What it means is the bond market's already priced it. Like interest rates need to go up to slow down the economy because there's too much inflation and the Federal Reserve are trying to catch up. I actually think the markets do a pretty decent job in the way that you suggest. Prices rise, eventually it gets too expensive, we stop doing it. Now, there's different equations that people fear is when it becomes super entrenched in the economy. And we all go to our bosses and go, I want a pay rise. And everybody does that at the same time. That pushes up prices further. You get more wage rises and that's a, you know, a wage price spiral. That really has only happened in the US really once, which was um, in the late 70s, early 80s, when all of the baby boomers hit kind of 30 years old at the same time. So if you think when you go back to 30, you're kind of settling down with somebody, you're probably thinking about buying a house, you're buying a car, you know, you've got a job, you're starting to earn some money. All of, we had the largest group of people in all history turning 30 at the same time. And they all did the same thing and bought the same stuff and that really pushed up prices. Um, and that was at the same time, there was issues with oil supply and other things. So we had this double whammy of a demand shock and a supply shock, which meant prices went crazy, but that's really only happened once. Okay, so we've got uh, two mechanisms that are working to adjust the economy. You've got people with their hands in, maybe it's better to not do it. Um, but nonetheless, we've got the market and we've got the Fed or human intervention, we'll call it. Yep. Right. So uh, we're in a really weird moment right now. We've got war happening in Europe. I put that in air quotes, maybe I shouldn't, but like we, we have war happening in Europe or at least on the cusp of Europe. Um, and that's obviously, there's an economic fight going on between Putin and Europe. I've heard different things about whether he's winning uh, that economic war, but certainly given their ability to export um, natural gas, I think is their primary export, uh, they're able, go ahead. Yeah, natural gas and crude oil, but Europe re relies on Russian natural gas. Okay, so you've got them able to disrupt the market that way. We're just coming out of COVID. Uh, we had a ton of stimulus thrown at the economy, certainly here in the US. I imagine a lot of other countries did that as well. Uh, so you've got, that was pushing the inflation narrative. If I remember right though, you, you'd been saying for quite some time, I actually don't think we're going to have an inflation problem, at least not in the long term. Um, what is it that you saw that led you to believe that? And I think part of your answer is going to be around bond prices. And if you can explain what it means for the bonds to have priced that in, cause I don't understand what that means. Okay, so my view, and it still remains, even though it seems pretty unfashionable right now with inflation at eight and a half percent, my view remains exactly what you talked about, is as prices go up, the economy slows down for the exact mechanism, and therefore it becomes self-regulating. And it becomes that because people are quite in debt, and it's a very old population in the US and Europe and elsewhere. So if you raise prices on your retired parents, they can't earn more money because they've got their pension and that's it. So what happens is they have end up buying less and there's a big cohort of people. So that's why I think it automatically over time kind of self-corrects. But the other mechanism is the bond market, which is a fancy name for saying interest rates, the price that you and I and companies and governments can borrow. So if it becomes more expensive to borrow, so think of your mortgage, if you've got a mortgage, 
Well, then if it comes more expensive to borrow, then you spend less. Right, so the, so the interest rate market forces demand to come lower. Now, let's say you don't have a mortgage and you're a renter. Well, the person you rent from has a mortgage, so they will raise your rent because of it, mm. which is why everybody's feeling this pain now, feeling a bit poorer. And, that, and, and that's the issue that's here. Okay, so bonds, if I understand them correctly, basically somebody's trying to raise money. So often this is a government bond. And so they're saying, hey, we want to build a bridge or whatever. And so they offer a bond either at the municipal level, the state level, the national level, I assume. Uh, and so you can buy these different bonds. The government is guaranteeing them. So, but my understanding is that Basically, they're going to give you a return on that money. So, hey, I'm loaning money to the government. And in return for that, they're going to give me some interest rate. So Correct. you said that that's, though, the price of borrowing money. But really, I'm lending money, at least as I understand it. Yes, so when you but said everybody then, if the government can borrow it, where is it today? Let's say two years, they can borrow at 2.5%. So if I give, I buy... US government bonds or I'm getting two and a half percent. Now, that becomes what's known as the risk free rate because the government can pay you back always. But then if I'm a bank, and Tom comes to me for money, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to look at Tom's credit rating, etc. And I'm going to say it's that two and a half percent plus another one percent, which is my, my extra profit for taking the risk. Um, and so different people will borrow money at different rates. So it filters through. So just because it's the government, it's actually what everything is benchmarked off. Um, and so the riskier you are, so if you're just now a 30 year old in your first job and you've only been earning a, you know, a salary for a year and a half, well, you might be able to borrow money, but it's going to be at 4% over the, whatever the government borrows it at because you're riskier. Or if you're a, um, a startup and you don't have enough cash flow, well, it's going to be higher than that as well. So everything's priced off that, which is why it's so important. It's probably the single most important factor within how economies play out is the price of which money gets lent and borrowed. And well, okay, so there's a couple of interesting things here. So one, I think it's important to remember, and this is something that uh, I find that I always get the, the hives over when people act like the government makes money. The government doesn't make money. The government taxes people and gets money from people that are productive and are earning money. So it's interesting that you're reminding me that you, we, are, we, the people, are both the borrowers and the lenders. Correct. Uh, so that's very interesting. Now, who sets the bond market interest rate? So it's set at two levels. One is the what's known as the Fed funds rate. And that is the money that 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 is the price of money that the Federal Reserve will operate with the banking system. But that is for very short term money. So it's very risk free, right? Because if I'm if I'm lending to you for a month, it's, it's not very risky. But if I'm lending to you for 10 years, well, then it's riskier. So you have a what's known as um, well, you have a interest rate curve, i.e. the further out you go, the higher the yield generally is. That's not always the case. Ahead of recessions, it actually switches around, and I'll come into that in a bit. So why is it, why is the price of money in the future more usually than the price of money now? Well, because potentially 
there's more inflation in the future, there's more uncertainty. So I want to make sure I'm being compensated to get my money back. Mm. And that basically is what the bond market does all day is figure out what's the future. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Future economic growth and what's the inflation rate in the future? Is there is there like a guy doing that? Or No, it's 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 the voting of crowds. So there's a guy doing it. Well, there's a group of guys and girls at the Federal Reserve who set the price of money. But then it's really the free market that sets the rest and nobody has a say in it, which is why when I talked earlier about the Fed was behind the curve, we've just talked about the yield curve. And the yield curve had already started pricing in lots of Fed hikes, I the cost of money needed to go up to offset the inflation. And the Federal Reserve hadn't raised the cost of money yet. So they're now busy trying to do meet the expectations of the market, it's probably too late we've probably already slowed down the economy anyway. So by too late, though, that doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's necessarily a bad thing. So we, the economy has slowed itself down. The market has done what the market is supposed to do. So the Fed is coming in behind us. Now, are they going to create problems now by adjusting that too late? Or um, I think there is a narrative that says that it's that the Fed have to do this, but you and I don't borrow at Fed funds rates, the markets already changed our mortgage costs or whatever. So I think the market does its job, but there's some belief that it has to be driven by the Fed and their Fed funds rate. 
Um, so that is, I think, more of a red herring. I think the free market does its job. However, they have one more other thing in their in their arsenal, and that is the ban- balance sheet, printing money or taking money out of the economy. And they have been printing money for a long time to offset the pandemic and the extra borrowing that was required, i.e. when they print money, they're buying the bonds of the government. So the Federal Reserve are buying the bonds of the government. So it allows the government to borrow more without causing any problems. Um, So right now, they're about to start tightening, quantitative tightening. People hear the terminology. And what that basically is a fancy word for, we're going to take some money out of the economy. And they're going to take huge... money out or they're just not going to put as much in? Well, if they stop quantitative easing, which is the first step, which they've done, that's not putting any money in, extra money in. When they do quantitative tightening, they take money out. So if there's a big pool of money sitting there and they say, listen, we're going to take 5% of that out every year, that less money around. So what's the mechanism? So if they want to put money into the system, they buy bonds, amongst other things. They buy assets. But if they want to take money out, what database are they updating? I don't understand. They sell bonds. They sell the bonds that's on their balance sheet. So they have trillions of dollars of this stuff sitting around where they've stimulated the economy. And then what they do is push it back into the economy. And the idea is it pushes up wages or all the banks have to buy these bonds now from the government. And so then they buy these bonds and they've got less money left to lend and do other activities with. Do the banks have to buy the bonds? Um, there are mechanisms by which they're essentially forced to buy the bonds. Now, interesting. so generally speaking, it ends up on the bank's balance sheets. And that makes money more difficult because they've now put that money into something. Right. So, so they have a finite amount of money to lend. The Fed, more or less, forces them to buy some of these bonds that they had originally purchased. So now the bank's amount of money to lend has become less, which means they're going to scrutinize the people that they lend to more, which means that they're going to raise the rates at which they lend them, I'm assuming, because they can. Okay, man, money's fucking weird. Uh, it, 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 is, is, it is weird, but... If you break it down to the human element, I'm going to lend you money when I've got plenty of it. And if you're desperately in need of it, because you're going through hard times, you'll pay anything for it. And if you kind of would like to to borrow some money, but aren't desperate, you'll pay a, low, a lower rate. It's basically as simple as that. You know, the transaction between two people is the same thing. So if a mate of yours comes to you and you know they're a terrible creditor, but he's a friend, you're going to have to set an interest rate that maybe to make sure that you get compensated for the risk you're taking. And if you don't have much money because you're feeling a bit tight yourself, you're either not going to lend it to him or charge a bit more money because you could have used that money for something else. Or lend him less. And I'm certainly going to be more scrutinous of whether I lend it to him. Yeah. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Now you said something earlier, you actually said a couple things. I'm going to plant a flag in the hope that I remember this. You slipped one thing in, which was uh, that going green is part of the sort of inflationary stress. So that's interesting. I want to come back to that. Um, But first I want to talk about um, debt. So you said that 
we've never been as in debt as we are now, or the baby boomers, just because of the, the size of the population, even though they came into a situation where they almost couldn't lose with things like at all time lows, housing costs, all of that interest rates, it was amazing, great time, they thrive. Millennials come in, it's the exact reverse. But even though they were in such a, an amazing situation, they still ended up getting themselves extraordinarily in debt. I want to give you a quote from somebody that uh, you may know. His name is Rao Pal, and he said, uh, this is such a great quote, humans love leverage above all things. Sex and leverage are the two things that drive humans. Uh, so what, what, why? Why are we so fiendish about leverage? And what does it do for us that makes it so intoxicating? So leverage allows you to borrow future money to use now. So at two levels is humans are terrible. We just want everything now. We don't want to work for it. If I can borrow it and buy that Rolex watch or my new car, right? If we're trying to meet our future expectations of ourselves always. That's what drives humans. So that's why they use leverage. And it's the same with investments. So they do it for purchasing purchasing power to bring that future expectations of themselves. Have I earned enough money to buy that car? No, but if I borrow money, I can get my future self here. It's kind of a trade-off because you're actually in debt and now owe somebody. You don't actually own the car. You own the ability to use the car until you pay that off. Mm. It's the same with a house, really. Um, and the other point is for investments. You know, People love to borrow money now because then you can make a bigger investment now. But the trade-off is, is what happens if that goes wrong? Then before you know, you get a margin call or liquidated. And you know, that's a feature we see a lot in the crypto markets, for example, that happens kind of automatically. So humans just love this stuff because it brings their future expectations of themselves closer. I could be right. richer. I could have more stuff than I deserve now from my income. Yeah, so dicey. And you had said in our last interview, don't do this on leverage. And that was the one thing. So I lived uh, the, I'll call it the lucky side of leverage. So I forget what year this was, probably 2006. So for everybody that knows the drama that happens in 2008, in 2006, uh, my wife, which is a whole another uh, thing about women and nesting and all of that she convinces me to spend more than i was really comfortable spending on a house but this was like the height of because this the, was the like, future expectation of yourselves now saying we deserve this big house yeah and i'll borrow yeah. some money to do it exactly and uh so this was when you could literally just they didn't even like research you they were just giving loans out like crazy and so we got a variable interest mortgage. And I thought, oh, 100% within whatever five years, I'm going to be making way more than I'm making now. I'm going to better myself. This is amazing. And so I did. And as it turns out, I ended up making way more money than I had been making. And so all was well, and we were able to refinance and it was no problem. But obviously for the vast majority of the world, it was a bloodbath. Now, because I felt like, whoa, I I bet on myself, yay, but like I realized only in hindsight how risky it was. And so now I don't fuck with leverage at all. I don't do anything on leverage. Like it terrifies the life out of me. I'm the, I'm the same. I'm, I'm terrified of leverage. 
Oh my God. And like, even Michael Saylor, who I have just a freakish amount of respect for, when I look at the, that he took on leverage to do the, the Bitcoin buying, now his number was very low. So we still have a long way to go before Michael Saylor has to worry about being liquidated. But all of that made me want to sit down and figure out what does liquidation look like? Because I didn't even understand, like, I understood a variable interest mortgage rate where, hey, at a certain date, the, you know, the rate of the mortgage goes from whatever, 5% to 15%, and that's going to be a much bigger payment. That I could understand, but I didn't understand liquidation. So as it pertains to a mortgage, which may be the easier one to understand, and once we understand that, then we can go to how people get themselves in trouble with crypto. But what does liquidation look like? If I have the house and my interest rate isn't going up because it's a fixed interest rate, how could I ever get in trouble? You can get in trouble if you can't pay your interest. So let's say the economy slows down and you lose your job. Now, what seemed like a reasonable payment suddenly becomes impossible. And then you get in arrears and then you get the little tap on your shoulder, which is like, I'd like that house back now because you don't own that house. We, the bank do. This is what people don't understand with leverage. You don't own that thing. You only own it when you pay it off. So that's what happens when you lose your job, you then can't afford to pay your mortgage payments. Now, there's a difference between the US and Europe for this. So the US, you give the keys back to the bank. It's not the end of the world. In Europe, the debt stays with you. Oh, God. Yeah. It's very different. So it is a they get the house back and you still owe the debt. Correct. Because the house is valued less, particularly when what you get, what we refer to as negative equity. I, you buy a house for 300 grand and it's now worth 200 grand. You owe the bank a hundred grand. Now it's okay if you can still make the payments and eventually you just pay off the mortgage. But the moment you can't, they're like, well, you owe us a hundred grand and they take you to court. And you carry that and you go to bankruptcy. Oof. And that's how um, housing is rare in the US. Um, most other leverage doesn't have the same process. Most of the leverage get the tap on the shoulder saying, I want my money back. And uh, you end up going to court and you end up going bankrupt. But you're never going to lose the house as long as I can make my payments, even right. if the value of the house changes, because... Right you get in, the bank could actually get into a pretty dicey situation where let's say the house was valued at 300,000 when I initially bought it, it drops down to 200,000. If I'm making my payments, the amount of collateral could have changed such that they're actually not in a good position. But as long as I'm making my payments, there's nothing they can do, right? Correct. Okay. Now, when we get to crypto, it's different, right? Because I'm not making any payments. So what is it, or am I making payments? Yes. How, how does leverage work in crypto? So leverage works in crypto that you have some Bitcoin and you want to borrow some more Bitcoin or some US dollars or whatever it is you want to do. So you will pledge your Bitcoin and your interest payments- As collateral. As collateral. And your interest payments are whatever they are. But what happens is if the collateral falls and the- exchange or whoever it is, or the DeFi protocol says, oh, it doesn't cover the amount, you get liquidated immediately. There's no negotiation, no, oh, please, no, nothing, just like, boom, out, and you take the loss. Because so like they're saying, hey, you've reached the point at which 
the what you owe us, the value of what you owe us has now been reached. And so if I don't take this back now, I run the risk of it dropping even lower. And now I'm out and I'm not going to let that happen. So it's like a house you can repossess instantaneously. Correct. And now you're out of the market. You don't get a, like, if it dipped down, even like a penny, it's gone. And so now if it bounced back up, you're still done, gone. Out of the market. That's right. Whoa. Okay. But you're, you're never going to end up owing because they're just going to liquidate you right at the moment. Correct. So when you go okay. into the financial markets, like the futures markets, which is mainly for accredited or sophisticated investors, it's not an instant liquidation. And that's terrifying because suddenly something like the oil price, let's say you've, you've bought some oil futures. What that is, is a, is leverage on the future price of oil. That's like you would do with Bitcoin, but oil sometimes can go down 10% a day. And before, and because you've got leverage before you know it, you're losing enormous sums of money. They don't liquidate you. They call you up and tell you, you owe the margin and you can get yourself in a huge mess. So leverage is very scary. The, the nice way of playing leverage is options. Options is something definitely worth people learning about. And a lot of people learned on Robin Hood because then you're only putting up what you can afford. If you say, I can afford to lose $1,000 on this bet, it's basically like the instant liquidation thing. And you can only lose the $1,000, but you don't lose your whole underlying position. You just lose the $1,000 you bet on the price of something going from here to there by whatever date. But that's, that's an options bet. Yeah, I don't know if I want to derail us trying to really wrap my head around options. Uh, I've, I have tried many times. It, you have an option to buy or sell. Is that the idea? Correct. You have the okay. right, not the obligation um, is the official terminology. But yeah, you have an option to buy and sell. Now, the amount of money that I put up, is that taken or did I not actually put it up? I only promised to put no, it up. No, you put it up. You put it up okay. so you can write so it's it off. there. It's locked in the system. So boom, they'll you take it. You can't lose anything more than that. Got it. But futures. So I remember, um, and I don't remember what platform it was on, but this was like a Wall Street bets thing on Reddit. And there were people, kids that just got in way over their head. They ended up owing like, you know, $75,000 and they killed themselves. And I remember thinking, what the hell? So what are you doing in a futures that can get you in that kind of trouble? You have open-ended losses and it's leveraged. So you can put thousand dollars down you can get ten thousand dollars of exposure and if the thing falls 20 percent overnight you've lost your thousand plus another thousand like that and it's open-ended if it goes down again and you still haven't met your margin call you've lost another thousand before you know it it's entirely wiped out and that's the problem because when you've got when you borrow 10 times a 10 percent fall is wiped out your initial margin, the, the, the bet you put. But in the options market, it doesn't because that premium is all you put in. You can't lose any more. And it can, and it has a time. So let's say it's three months. So even if it falls below and is worth nothing, it's still in existence. And maybe it comes back again three months later, you're okay still. So it's, it's just a different way of doing risk. Okay, so humans are driven by leverage and sex. And um, so right now we're, so what I want people to understand, so 
the ultimate question we're going to be answering in this interview is how we're going to thrive in this period, like what we can do. So we know we're going to take a kick to the face, but you've got the Baron Rothschild quote of, uh, in fact, let me read, this is the verbatim quote that they think was the original. So what everybody knows is buy when there's blood in the streets. But the original quote supposedly was buy when there's blood in the streets, even if the blood is your own. So there's this sense of like, hey, there's going to be a moment where everybody else is going to panic. We're living in that moment right now. Um, people are freaking out. The euphoria that we had six months ago has transitioned into uh, a sort of cynical, fearful thing. And so now people are not necessarily looking for opportunities. And that may cause them to miss a tremendous moment. But for them to find that moment is going to be incredibly difficult because when I heard that quote, my instinct is by what? Because you can't just go in ignorantly and like, you know, you're in a strip club and you're, you're flipping money around and that's going to work out for you, right? You will be in a worse nightmare than you were if you just waited. So we have to find the right thing to buy. So the question becomes, we have to understand, I think you tell me, because Lord knows I do not consider myself a talented investor. So it would seem to me that what you have to understand is the macro market, what is going on. We are, as the, the Chinese proverb goes, may you live in interesting times, which is not meant in a kind way. We are certainly in interesting times right now. So we've got whatever uh, potential economic crisis is going on in China, they are locking down now again, because they have a zero COVID policy. We've got war going on in Europe. Um, we have, potentially a global recession headed our way. We certainly have inflation. Maybe it's transitory, like you were saying. Maybe it's entrenched. We're not sure. Maybe there's things we can do to fix it. Uh, we've certainly got humans in here meddling in the market, maybe for better, maybe for worse. Um, you've predicted that we've got stimmy checks coming because we have this insane debt going on that is that largely relegated to boomers or is there something else paint paint this macro picture for us explain to me the debt angle and why you know that they can't let it implode and who they are and how they stop it from imploding okay so debt at economic level happens four different places one is governments it's called the deficit you hear this terminology. It's basically how much the government borrows. So the US government- From the people and foreign entities, or is there another way to borrow? Yes, they'll borrow from people, foreign entities, corporations, anybody who wants that rate of interest that they will give them for it. So you have the US government, you have the US households, individuals, us. You have corporations, and you have the financial system. Those four are combined are about 300 and something percent of GDP, i.e. GDP is the amount of activity in the economy every year in dollar terms, and they've borrowed an extraordinary amount. This is the most indebted the US has ever been. All but, four of those entities together. Yes. So we as individuals, corporations, government, and the financial market have just gone haywire, and we've borrowed 300% over our entire yeah, it annual might, It GDP. might actually be 400%. I'm not sure the exact number right now, but 
The financial system's not as bad as it was. So they're not the bad guys this time around. They got told off. They got said, not, don't borrow as much money. The individuals have not been great, but not terrible. The government borrowed a lot more and corporations borrowed a lot more. So to put it in perspective, the US is about 25% of the global economy. Yet they have a hundred percent equivalent of global GDP and debt. So this is the most indebted economy in the history of world economics in terms of global debt, because it's so big. Now, the US is not the only one here. Europe's got massive debts. Japan's got massive debts. So lots of China's got big debts. Everyone's got debts because we borrowed for our future selves. You know, why, why get enough tax income for the road system I need to build? Why not just issue more bonds and build it now? Because the bet is I'll create more productivity in the future and then GDP grows and it's easier to pay off. And that generally works okay. Like the bet that you took is, will my income be able to cover this debt in future? In most circumstances, it is. But what happens is, when your debt becomes so large and something happens to your income, then you start to say, well, can I pay this debt? So we talked about that part. The other part is, well, everything's backed by collateral, as you mentioned before. That's the thing that you pledge when you take out debt. Now, if collateral falls too much in value, somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, that stuff you gave us in exchange for the money doesn't cover the money anymore. And then you get this liquidation that we talked about. This can't happen on a economic level. It can happen to you and I, it can happen to us in our crypto accounts, it can happen to us in our financial accounts, but we can't let it happen systemically because then everything goes. So we came very close to the edge in the US and Europe in 2008. So much so that the banking system seized up entirely because the collateral, the house prices went down. And then the banks were like, oh shit, we don't have enough money against all of this. And then people weren't paying because we're going to recession. That big doom loop happens. In Europe, it came, we got that, but then there was another one in Europe, which was the EU crisis. This time, it wasn't the banks that were in trouble. It was the governments, Italy, Spain, France, Portugal, Greece, couldn't pay their debts. And then the that was the really holy shit moment is if whole countries that are part of Europe, these are big, massive nations, can't pay their debts, then we're all fucked. Because then that's the whole banking system gone. That's the whole system of government gone. That's everything gone. So they backstop the system by saying, we'll do whatever it takes. This was Mario Draghi's favorite famous term. So the basically the EU got together and said, we will buy these bonds to stop them falling to price in bankruptcy. Because against government bonds, as we talked about, it's the risk-free rate. Well, if it's not risk-free, then all of the other debt that's borrowed on top of it would have blown up too. So and how did, is... they, how did they buy that? Were they printing more euros? Correct, correct. That's been the answer since 2008, is to print currency to buy bonds, which is known as currency debasement. And this, many purists in the financial markets said it doesn't work that way, the mechanism, but it's very clear that this is basically monetary debasement. 
what monetary debasement means for anybody who doesn't understand is, is let's say you're thirsty, Tom, I sell you a bottle of water. You want to buy it because you're thirsty, so I can charge you $5 for it. Then let's say I say, well, you can't buy one bottle of water. No, there's only one bottle of water around. If I say, look, I've got 20 bottles of water. Well, it's, it's not that panicky to get that one bottle. So it might clear at $3 for that bottle of water. Now, if I've got a million bottles of water, what, water's worthless, right? So the more you create of something, the less value it has. So if there's one Picasso, it's worth a fortune. If Picasso had made 5,000 of exactly the same painting, they're worth less. So we see that with, for example, one-on-ones of Warhol versus Warhol's factory where he produced very similar pieces. They're, they're worth less than the others. We see it in the NFT world as well. So scarcity versus abundance. So what you do when you print more money means there's more money around. So it lowers the value of the money. So that's that's debasing currency. So this is why they can't let the system go bust because now there's so much leverage that everything goes. And we saw this in Argentina, famous moment in Argentina in 2001, I believe it was, called El Coralito, where the Argentinians couldn't pay their bills, the, the government. So what they did is they had this dual economy, the Argentinian peso and a dollar-based peso. They just took all the dollars from the bank accounts and convert them into pesos. So they got the dollars themselves to pay their debts, but basically utterly destroyed the peso and destroyed the economy. So much so that Argentina reverted to barter. It was oh. an extraordinary moment in time. Um, so that that's the risk. The other time we saw something similar in a more developed country was Cyprus. Cyprus is a European country. Now, Cyprus, they had a financial crisis. There was too much debt. It was based around property. And so what happens is the banks were insolvent, like they were in the US and like they were in Europe. But the answer was the ECB said, we're not bailing you out. So what they did is took any deposit out of the banking system over a hundred thousand euros and took it. So it wasn't your money, which is, this is what got me into crypto in the first place. Once I realized it's not your money, even if it's in a bank, it's not your money. Um, so these are the, these are the laws of unintended consequences that happen if you allow the collateral to go under, if we were less levered, like in India, the country's very unlevered. It's like, call it 60% of GDP in debt in a fast growing economy, it's growing 10% a year, right? That's, that's like you taking the mortgage out and the mortgage isn't that big and you've got great income, right? The probability of you not being able to pay that debt, is very low. So it doesn't matter if Indian assets fall a lot and stuff like that, because there's no, nothing systemic there. You're not going to destroy the population. Um, but when it's the US or Europe, you can't allow it. You just simply can't. Because also part of this is you've got this huge old population of retired people or people trying to retire. If you allow the market to clear, then their savings pool disappears. Now, it's all right for you and I. We've all gone through parts of our career where we've lost a bunch of money and we make it back. You know, you've started, you've created a startup, doesn't work. You work hard, but you can't do that when you're 75 years old. What's lost is lost.
and then you have to halve your income, your spending, because you've just lost half your pool of money, and you don't know how long you're going to live for. So this is why there's so much complexity with old populations, lots of debt. You just can't allow the system to go under. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that is really interesting and unnerving at the same time, the interconnectedness of all of this. And then of course it begs the question, what is India doing that we're not doing? Is it just discipline? Is it lack of opportunity? Like how are they at 60% when we're at three to four? Because their banking system didn't really function and they were more restrictive on their lending policies, which is a function of their economy being more emerging than developed. So people don't want to lend them as much either because they're more risky. You're like a startup, even though India is obviously a very old thing, but you know, in, in these terms. Um, and so, and they ran a bit more inflation than other countries. So it's really that, and they have a culture of savings. It's because when you're able to borrow, because you're the richest dude in the street who earns the most money, which is the United States, and humans have a propensity to borrow, to create the image of this future self. The future self was the amazing United States of America, that dream that we had in the 50s. That dream died decades ago. And to fund that dream, the mismatch between the dream and the reality is debt. Sometimes debt is not all bad, right? Sometimes it can help accelerate some of the things. But if you're doing it to fund a dream that's never gonna exist, that's the danger. All right, let's go back then to the, so what defined the American dream and what killed it? The American dream that came out in the 50s was about the wonder of economic growth, technology, peacetime, and abundance and opportunity for everybody. Everybody could be the president, everybody could be rich. That mentality is terrifying because it creates a misalignment of present self and future self. So everybody feels like they never got there. You know, this was the whole book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson was basically this, is that's what Vegas is about. We don't have gambling in the same way in Europe. You can go and gamble, it's just not a big deal. But in America it is, because it's about this future expectation of yourself, I think driven by the American dream. And obviously a frontier style economy and how the US, you know, gave birth to itself. So the American dream was set up and the whole construct was set around it. 
And then two bad things happen. One bad thing, number one, is everybody goes, this is fucking amazing. I want to have kids, right? Prosperity, great times. So all of the people who've gone through the war, the war, or maybe two wars, had kids. Those kids were the baby boomers. And they had too many kids. They had too many, too many kids in, in what way? For the planet? Uh, because no, the for the children themselves. So what happens is, is if two of us go for a job interview, we have a 50-50 chance. If a thousand of you do, you have a one in a thousand chance. So what happens is if too many people come into the workforce at the same time, they compete with each other for, for wages. And if you look back and inflation adjusts wages for the average median American or the average American, particularly the median American, over the last 45 years, it's not gone up at all. So there's been no productivity growth. The miracle never happened. But in the meantime, the price of assets went up. Why? Because there's a whole bunch of people at the same age who all want to buy a house at the same time, all want to buy into the stock market at the same time to stay for their retirement. They pushed up prices. So they got poorer because they couldn't, they didn't own it all. And so the more they tried to buy over time, the more it went up and they got this massive gap. And that gap between their earnings and the costs of, of assets that you secure your future income in kept going up. So they borrowed money. And when you, when you basically adjust by asset prices, like house prices versus wages, the difference is the debt. And then the government started doing the same. So it was all driven by the baby boomers, but the baby boomers had a second shock and a third shock. Second shock came really in the late mid eighties, which was computers. Computers started competing for jobs with people slowly at first and then faster. And then 1996, the W uh, 1999, 2000, well, 1996, the, w uh, the World Trade Organization, WTO, agreed that, what a great idea, let's all trade without tariffs with each other, free markets. Yeah, well, the free market actually meant that when China entered the global workforce, they would work for a fraction of what you and I would work for. And so that meant labor costs never went up and the cost of goods got cheaper because China could produce them cheaply. So we just gorged on this stuff because there's cheap goods. We borrowed more money because we had this future expectation of ourselves being rich, the American dream, and we gorged on more money and we borrowed money to see if we can make money from asset prices. So this whole thing was driven by demographics and that came out of World War II. So it was World War II that drove all of the mess we're in now. And that's the same globally. Was there a baby boom all around the world? No, the US, yes, sorry, there was a baby boom everywhere. The difference was Europeans didn't have a second baby boom, which is the millennials. The US has the millennials and that's helped the US economy outperform Europe over time. Japan didn't have um, millennials either. So they're all older populations. The US had the millennial population. So the millennial population it pops up into the workforce. You know, the millennials, you know, about four years ago started hitting 30 years old, that 
that big thing. This is a big bunch of people. Problem is they look into the world, their parents are still in the workforce. So they need to compete with jobs with their parents. There's a whole bunch of them competing with each other. They all try and go to university to see if they can get a better job. So they drive up the cost of university. They then come out of university, they try and buy a house. They drive up the cost of house. I mean, it's just a mess. When you have these bulges of population, you create all these distortions. So these millennial population are pretty screwed because the, their parents have driven up the price of assets so high, trying to save enough to retire, which has never really happened. That they look, they come out and say, right, I'm earning money now. What do I buy? Oh, the equity market at all-time high valuations, the bond market at all-time low yields, property prices are too high to afford. I'm fucked. You know, it, again, all of these are why I got to crypto because I knew that I had a different expected future return because their parents had known the stuff. And therefore, they themselves could help drive the price up and the adoption as long as they bought it and owned it. Okay, so demographics are destiny. That That's something that Correct. you hear said a lot, which is um, terrifying, I suppose. I don't like anything to be destiny. I The idea of the American dream, so going back to what you were saying about Vegas, um, that is a fascinating take. So what may have somewhat distorted my view of all of this is that the American dream worked for me perfectly. Uh, I, I'm a Gen Xer, but I am- And why is everybody watching your show? Because they want it to work for them. Yeah. So here's, <laughs> here's where we get into something really weird. So what you and I were talking about last time is, hey, I see this opportunity in crypto, which by the way, my thesis is still intact in terms of that. And so I hope that people aren't panicking, um, that they didn't take leverage, that they were slow and steady wins the race. Um, I haven't sold a single Satoshi um, to give Me people a, a sense of where my head is at. But Rao, the reason that things worked out for me is really twofold. One, I have an obscene work ethic that makes even myself sometimes uncomfortable. Uh, there's a, a Jordan Peterson quote that I think is really insightful, which is don't ask why there aren't more women running Fortune 500 companies, ask why there are any men at all. And what he meant by that is it is so grueling that why does anybody do it? And since I got into NFTs, I've been working for the last eight months at this point, maybe nine, I've been working 120 hour weeks. And even I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is crazy. So that's number one. My work ethic is insane. Uh, number two, I believed it could happen. Now, you put those two together. It does not necessarily equal a good outcome. I am hyper aware of the role luck has played in my life. But if you take either one of those away, it is a guaranteed failure. So if you don't work hard, you are fucked. If you don't believe you can achieve, you won't do the things you need to do to be successful because why would you? It doesn't make sense if you don't think it's going to work out. And so while there can be no guarantee of success, one thing I am really trying to get people to do is believe that it, it can happen. Now I will define it differently as in, if you can make something that people want more than they want their money, then you can be successful. So Let's talk about it in financial terms, financial market terms or macro terms. I think there's three things you need to do here. One, income. Income rules the world. Income pays your bills. 
Income can pay your mortgage. Income does everything. Without income, you got nothing. Income takes hard work. It's hard to get up the ladder, earn more income. Secondly, is you need to have optionality. You need to have things that can pay off. A startup or a hobby business on the side can give you optionality because you can build a business and a business has intrinsic value, plus it can increase your income. That will never happen if you work for a corporation. Yes, you can have a great career and do fine, but you'll never have that extra upside that you and I have had by building businesses. So that is another thing is, is focus on your income, work hard, look for other opportunities that can leverage that income and opportunity set that you've got for you. And then thirdly, is if I've got this income, look for investment opportunities that can change my life. And that doesn't mean being a degenerate gambler. It's like, simply put, if there is a thesis, for example, in cryptocurrency that you and I share, that this is a long-term network adoption of this incredible technology that is exponential in nature and highly volatile, you should be looking at the moments of extreme weakness, the blood on the streets moment, to be buying more, not on leverage, but just putting your money into it. So if you'd have bought a house after the 2008 crisis, you'd have done very well. If you'd have bought it at the peak you'll have done less well, right? So timing matters. And I looked at this to give you a specific example, I just wrote a whole article about this, is I went back with a bit of honesty, thinking I'm looking at my ETH price and I'm going, why didn't I sell it at 3000? I should have just, you know, I could have bought it back cheaper. And I know that that is a siren song that goes in your head, right? Mental torture. And I've been in this space since 2013. So I went back and looked at my entries and exits and what I did in the past and what had happened if I just bought and hold and what had happened if I bought and hold and added when it was this far oversold. It's very simple. So I figured out that if I'd, I, so what I did is I bought in 2013, $200 per Bitcoin. It went up to, Whoa. It, it went up to a thousand sorry, it, it went up to a 1000 in six weeks. I was like, Oh, my Jesus. God, but I had a long term thesis, I wrote the first kind of macro strategy paper about the valuation of Bitcoin, I thought this could be worth a million dollars. And let's assume I'm an idiot by 90%. It's still worth 100 grand. So this is the best bet I've ever seen. So I held on, and then it fell 82%. And I'm like, wow, but I'd taken the bet and I put money in, was not levered, and I could afford to take the bet. So I just thought, I'm just gonna forget about this and just see, because this is a longer term thing and you don't normally make money that fast and it doesn't normally fall this fast, so let's just see. And then I kind of forgot about it, 2014, and then 2015 starts going up again. And then by 2017, I'm now mentally scarred from an 82% drop, coulda, woulda, shoulda, I then see confusion in the market about whether we're going to fork Bitcoin to two different chains. The price is 2000. I'm now up tenfold. I'm a genius. My macro bet has paid off, sort of. I sell out. It goes up to 20,000 in three months later, and I don't mind. I don't mind because I've made 10 times my money. 
what I did was deviate from my thesis. My thesis was this was a 10 year bet. And I took the money off the table within five. And then I went back and then obviously I bought back in June, May, something like that, 2020 and had a good run and put more money into it than I, than I had originally in my original bet. And I worked out that I had, as opposed to just holding my original bet, I, I used a theoretical number. So I think it was, if you put 10 grand into that first bet, it would have been worth 1.4 million. Wow. By doing the right thing, buying reasonably low and selling reasonably high and you know, timing the market, that was a small fraction. It was in fact, I think I make 20% of what I would have meant if I held on. And then I went back and looked at, okay, well, what did I actually do? Because I massively increased my position in, in, uh, in June, I still underperformed by 5x. And then I'm like, okay, what happens if I'd done the right thing, what I should have done, which was my framework, which was you buy it when people when it's on sale when there's blood in the streets. So I went back and looked at the the, the bottoms of the bear market, assumed I'm an idiot, and I can't catch the bottom of the bear market and miss it by 30%. And just put the same amount in each time that I started with that 1.4 million would have been 30. Whoa. Oh, sorry, not 30. Sorry, three. But had I, Good Lord. Had I rolled my profits in, you know, had I just doubled down each time or whatever, the numbers go exponentially larger. And that really stopped me in my tracks. It's like, here's me doing the right thing, you know, buying when it's in a bull market, selling when it's in a too strong a bull market, buying when it's down a bit. And I still didn't do as well as just holding it. And I, if I just added to it, I would have done well. And my framework is this is a long term trend, right? We've got at least another decade in this, at least probably two or three decades. But this part of it is going to continue to do very well. Sure, Bitcoin over time as it gets more users more adopted, it won't go up as much each cycle. But there'll be plenty of others and plenty of opportunities. So what we should be doing is using this, thinking of the money you put in as your retirement money and writing it off. Um, and then just adding, if you've got money in a bear market. Now, the problem is, is most of us don't in a recession. But a friend of mine taught me very early on, he said, Raoul, there's a key thing I've learned is he who has cash in a recession is king. So that's that combination of income an opportunity. You've got income, you've got some cash, and now everything's on fire sale prices. You're the king. So what what do we learn about the psychology through all of this? Because this really feels like a, a psychology game. It and is. I'm, I'm really glad that this has happened quickly. So for me, I've been in crypto for less than two years. And I have seen now even in that time, sort of multiple like, oh, it's all over. No, we're back. No, it's all over. And so watching the whiplash of how people feel, act, talk, even like what where I go from feeling like I am so smart, like this is insane to, ooh, like, is this really going to play out? Like the level of 
doubt where, to your point, I just have to turn off my brain. I'm like, I'm not going to think about it. I was perfectly willing. When it was up, I was like, if it went to zero, I would be fine. So I'm like, if that's really true, then chill. You're fine. Like, you know, just let it do what it's going to do. And if you were lucky enough, like you and I, to have bought slightly earlier in the cycle, then for goodness sake, don't look at your loss of wealth from peak. That's mm, stupid. That's point. the American dream fixating on something that doesn't exist. Think, okay, fine. I'm still, I'm still in. I'm probably still up. Don't think, oh, my net worth's down 50%. This is the end of the world. No, that's not how it works. How it works is you need to be in it to win it. Mm. And you can't be in it to win it if you've got leverage or if you're out of the market. And so if, if you say to me, well, you know, that's that difficult for people, sure, then put less in. It's as simple as that. You get to the point where you can sleep at night, then you've got the right size bet. Um, and once you have made money and it's compounded, then don't look at it from the peak to trough. So one of the tricks I've learned with myself in a slightly different thing is wine. I, I, lo I love wine and wine, good wine is expensive. It's a lot cheaper if you buy it early I, when it comes out. So I bought, and I've just taken a delivery of stuff I bought 15 years ago. Now, what I do is this little mental trick, which is I write off everything I pay for wine when I buy it, because I don't see the wine for 15 years, so why do I care? Whoa. And so mentally, it's gone to zero. So now I'm able to drink wine, which I would never open because I haven't paid for it. I kind of like, I wrote it off. Um, and it's really helpful to use mental tricks on yourself to stop yourself doing things you shouldn't be doing, which mm. is selling at the low, buying at the high, or you know, buying a bunch of wine and then not being able to drink it. And you actually buy it to drink. I don't sell wine, but if I, if I did, I would have just sold all my wine. I've never have tasted amazing wines. It's, it's these mental tricks we have to play interesting you mentioned earlier the siren song of you know looking at like oh my god if i had sold at that point like i would be so much farther ahead than i am now it's interesting that you use the siren song so for people that don't know the mythology there were these sirens supposedly that would call to men they would sing this incredible song and the men would want to hear it more so they would sail the ship closer and they would crash and so the sirens were intentionally trying to get you to ruin yourself basically and in the story, the solution isn't to develop the willpower in order to resist the siren song. His whole thing was tie me to the mast so that I can't move. All of you block out the sound so that no matter what I say, you don't listen to me and I can enjoy the, the sound of it without being able to take action on it. So basically you have to find a mental trick in order to deal with it. Your the lashing you to the, the rail is to write off the wine so that you can enjoy it when you get it. Yeah, instead and write of off the investments investment. I've got in, in, in crypto. And then I observe the sentiment. I observe the sirens. I hear the song, but they don't affect me. Well, they, they obviously do affect you, but you, you, you try not to let it affect you as much. You distance yourself from price action mm. because your theory is that it's going to go from here to a lot further over time. That key word is over time. And we've all said, all of us have said, and we know it does this a lot on the way. So then if you know that it's a known known, 
why the hell when it happens do we people forget it's, it's so funny when when bitcoin and eth crashed last year fell 50 odd 55 percent from the high i spoke to my wife and i'm like god everybody's freaking out you know and she's like why what's happened i said well it's down 50 percent." she said but you said that's normal and her exact words so just shut the fuck up you should be buying here not freaking out i'm like yeah true you have to remind so yourself yeah like this is a two-part process if you want to succeed so going back to answering the fundamental question that we're here to answer how do you thrive in a time like this so one you have to have the understanding of the market the macro trends all of that to know what to buy and then you have to have the psychological resilience that even though you feel it to your point like i feel that we're down and it does not feel good but it hasn't changed my behavior and so because the thesis is still intact Yes. And so let's look at other opportunities. So maybe not everybody likes crypto. Another thing that is patently obvious is technology is not going away. Now, it's not easy to pick the right technology stocks, much like it's difficult to pick the right NFTs or tokens, unless you really know what you're doing and, or you, yeah, you know that particular company or that project. But if the thesis is that technology is going to continue to have this ridiculous adoption, whether it's AI, EV, whether it's robotics, whether it's genetic sciences, all of these things that are around us, space travel. Well, then if it's being sold in a fire sale because everybody's panicking, well, surely that makes sense because technology has outperformed the market for the last 40 years. So you always want to be buying technology. So if you're thinking of your 401k, you're a, you know, you're in your 30s, you look at your 401k and you've still got your income because that's the most important thing of everything. You've got your income. You should be going, okay, I should be buying technology stocks and I should be buying crypto because these are long-term mega trends. Now, is there, so we're living in a very particular moment, but one thing I like about Ray Dalio is his idea of this is another one of those. Is this like another time? Is there something that we can learn from historical trends that we could be applying to our investment thesis now? So the investment thesis, I don't believe so necessarily. There's a lot of macro similarities with the pasts, past episodes, and everybody makes it very dramatic. There tends to be a lot of doom porn, and I've been a proponent of that as well. You know, everything looks like the 1929 crash. Everything looks like we're going to go to World War II. Everything looks like, you know, it's 2001 all over again. Yes, those things happen. But things go on. And if you bought tech stocks after 2001 crash, you'd be very, very wealthy indeed. If you think of Jeff Bezos, he launched Amazon, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, has his IPO. It explodes in price. Everyone's like, oh, amazing, an online bookseller. It then falls 96%. Right, so this is exactly what um, I went through in crypto, exactly the same. And then what happened is, well, unlike most of his investors, he held on. And it went up a lot again, still didn't make up the high. It fell another 80%, it went up again. It then fell 60%. And then before you know it, this online bookseller was suddenly worth more than all the bookselling companies in the world added together. And it was still trading at a price earnings ratio of like 800. Everyone's like, this is crazy. This is a bubble. But what we didn't realize is he was building a network 
this network for e-commerce and then the computing power that drives it, you know? And so over time, Amazon just did that. And these are the things you need to think about in this is where are we in the volatility and is this going to survive? Those are the two questions. And if the long-term trend is there, then you should be buying into all of this. What are the smartest people buying right now? Anything? Are they sitting in cash? Are they moving on something? Are there is a lot for of, a there's a lot of cash. So I have my global macro investor round table, which is a bunch of my subscribers for my kind of very high end institutional research service, a bunch of the world's most famous hedge funds, family offices, asset management firms. And we all have this little enclave here in the Cayman Islands with a lot of wine and a lot of discussion and trade ideas and stuff like that. And generally people are a lot in cash. The real estate developer guys, you know, the kind of wealthy guys who were in real estate as their primary thing, a lot of them had sold quite a lot. Um, then the, the hedge fund guys were very concerned about recession, but were looking, and so they were buying, let's call it cash, bonds, cash, anything to kind of just not be involved in risky assets like stocks and stuff. But they were looking for the opportunity for the other side, which is what what is that opportunity? And that opportunity was technology, crypto, and commodities. Commodities have gone up a lot recently, but we've got this, um, it's this greening thing that's going on, right? We're going to green the world. We have the political willpower to do it, and it's going to happen faster than the market can take. And that means we underinvest in mining stuff and we overinvest in battery technology wind farms solar farms right and the idea is eventually you accelerate this so much that it becomes the adopted technology and electricity becomes cheaper from doing it the issue is there's not enough copper for the electricity we need to generate so we're about to go into this enormous copper shortage you don't notice it now because the economy's weakening and so less people demanding copper. But once we come through the other side of this, you're going to have this huge demand for copper. And it's a problem. But it's part of that green energy transition. Green energy transition also is going to require a lot of other stuff to build these wind farms, these solar farms, the hydrogen power, the, you know, and whether we go to atomic energy or whatever it is, it's a whole change in how the world works. It's very similar to the 1950s when we kind of rebuilt America, the factories and all of that kind of stuff. So that moment in time means that these guys wanted both commodities and technology um, because they know th this one's probably kind of a, a good five or 10 year cycle and the technology cycle is limitless right now. So that's, I guess, where most people were thinking, but everyone was very nervous over this next three month period about what happens to the economy and what could happen to markets. So what signals are they looking for? I'm assuming everybody going into cash is thinking, okay, blood is in the streets, but I'm not yet sure which way things are going, whether I've got the timing right. But I imagine there are certain signals that they're looking for. So if it's copper and we're looking for that transitionary moment, or are they buying it now? Like, what are the, um, what are the signs that they will look for to go in on something? So we talked about income plus opportunity. So they've got the cash. So, you know, one of the world's best technology investors investors KOTU, I think they're 70% cash, Whoa. which is extraordinary because these guys are, you know, they're aggressive technology investors, 70% cash. There's a whole bunch of people who are, 
So what they're saying is the future opportunity is going to be big and it's going to be cheaper than it is today. Now, will they time it properly, will, et cetera? Doesn't really matter, but here's what the smartest people are saying is the future opportunity is better than the present opportunity. So that's a little scary though, because that means prices are going to go down further. Well, we don't know when they had that bet. They might have done that four months ago, in which case it's been a very good bet and they'll be looking to deploy. And if I read their investor letter, they say they're now starting to look to deploy stuff into interesting opportunities where things are really cheap, which is the thing I said before. You know, when the market throws out the baby with the bathwater, that's when you start finding the things you really like. You know, in crypto world, things like Solana, great project, down 85%. You know, there's a whole bunch of these big layer ones with network adoption effects already. They, these are not super speculative assets. They're obviously speculative, risky, but not super risky. They're all down 80, 85, 87%. Okay, that becomes interesting. So I look at the world as not a macro investor. I still see a hyper amount of uncertainty and I want everybody, if this is your first time watching me, I do not consider myself a talented investor. I have always um, considered myself to be focused on learning how to make money. And that's where I've been successful. Investing money is, is a big question mark and I'm exploring that. Um, but I look at the level of uncertainty right now and I am deeply, gravely concerned about where we're going. Uh, when I look at what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine, that obviously gives me pause, but really more so China potentially going after Taiwan, if that is, um, Xi Jinping has said that part of his legacy is gonna be the reunification of China. He's already got Hong Kong. Uh, Taiwan becomes the obvious next move, uh, which is you know, super nerve wracking. Are there big things like that on your mind to like hit the pause button to wait to see how they play out? Or does that not strike you as a big concern? Um, yes, always, obviously. And, you know, being a macro guy, you're endlessly reassessing the odds of different outcomes all the time. And there's multiple outcomes. It's not like I go, this is the outcome and I'm assessing the odds. It's like, what well, could this happen? Could this happen? Could this happen? Is something changing? That's what you're doing all the time. So we know that the, there is the global economy is splitting regionally, that the, there's a bunch of, let's go back, the US dollar, the US economy is 25% of the world economy. It's, as we said, a huge amount of the world debt. It's 100% of GDP in debt. The real problem is 80% of all trade transactions on earth are in dollars. So the US is 25% of the economy, but dictates 87% of everything else that happens. When the dollar goes up, the dollar goes down, everybody pays the price. If the dollar interest rates go up, everybody pays the price and everyone's kind of had enough of it. It was known as the global reserve currency, but it's too big as a percentage of the global economy in China, Europe, everybody said, we need to change this. And obviously having control over money is power. So the Chinese want to create regional power and that will happen. There's virtually no way we can stop it. And it's a matter of how you accept it and how, and by what manner? Do you want to go to kinetic warfare with them? Or do we just continue with cyber warfare and geopolitical struggles, which has been the way of, you know, our relationship with Russia, our relationship with China for a long time? 
I don't think anybody wants to go to kinetic war. Just see what happened in the Ukraine. Nobody did anything. What they did was we'll sanction you and we'll give you some weapons. But there it is, a war in the heart of Europe. And NATO didn't do anything because they don't because the outcome of getting involved was bigger than getting involved. So so let me ask then what is China going to do to force so if the whole world wants there to be a balance that the US making up 87% of global transactions is not something that they're willing to do anymore is it that China starts building a, um, a consortium of people that are going to denominate in the yuan? Is that how this plays out? We don't know yet. Obviously, they'd like it, but it's not ready because they've got a, what's known as a closed capital account, which meaning people can't get money out and in easily. So if you think what China did, they did something called the one belt, one road policy. So they basically went around the world and found a bunch of people who were desperate for money and said, we'll give you money in exchange for us being able to have some of your natural resources or your access to your ports. Now, that hasn't been the most successful strategy, but it's in place. And China's footprint across Africa, um, at some of Europe, all over, even down to the Caribbean, um, South America is all over the place from this one belt, one road. So there was trading power that they created. They then created leverage on it because if I lend you money, you, I own you. So that's what they did. And then they formed a, uh, like a, I think it was called the East Asia or the Asian Investment Bank, which was an idea to create like an international monetary fund for a bunch of countries in East Asia and Asia overall to try and think about separating out these worlds where China's the dominant trade partner for Asia. So why should the US dollar be used? I get that point, why should it? Um, so they've started splitting that up. Then the next phase in what happened, I think was when the US and the West essentially froze Russian central bank assets, they basically said the same as Cyprus said, which is, your money's not your money. So if you're China, you understand that is now a weak link. A weak link. So if you want Taiwan, and again, I'm not a geopolitical guy, really, but it makes logical sense. If you want Taiwan, what you need to do is distangle yourself from the global system. We're already splitting up supply chains to detangle these two groups because they want to separate. They're going to get divorced. So they're trying to just sort out their financial affairs, move apart, and then um, China could then think about this. So they need to separate themselves financially, economically, and then you can have Taiwan. And then that's how, it, that's how it, that's the way it seems to be moving. And it hasn't really deviated from that path for a long time. Do you think it's fair to call this a deglobalization? Um, I think we have a tendency to look at everything through Western eyes. What it is, is a change of the global order system. Ooh. And Ooh. yeah, there's a great book called The Fourth Turning. I think I've recommended it before. Everybody should read it. This is The Fourth Turning. It's exactly what's happening. And that's not like geopolitical doom and gloom. It's actually driven by demographics and the changes and the opportunities and the threats that happen over it. But what we're doing is we're moving away from an old system into a new system. And I don't think it's going to be a one currency system. I think we'll just regionalize. 
Is that the end of the world? No, we've been to many times in worlds like this before. So people think of it as cataclysmic because it's changed from what we know. But really, is somebody in Indonesia better or worse off if they don't use the US dollar? Better off. You know, are they better to borrow and lend money with their main trading partner, which would be China? Better off. So it's going to happen. And it's just splitting apart. Now, does it end up in two economic zones or three? Or does somebody try and build an alliance of a globalized currency, which is something that's been talked about, the Bancor idea, something that better reflects global trade? Maybe two. I don't know, but change is happening. And you can fear it, but you're not going to stop it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, one way to look at this is, is a way that as a media guy, I think about this a lot is there's this constant uh, movement in media where there's money to be made in grouping things together. And then there's money to be made in decoupling them. And then there's money to be made in bringing them back together and then decoupling them. And so it'll be interesting to see if we start seeing on a long enough timeline, this sort of globalization, deglobalization, globalization, deglobalization. Well, that's, don't forget when the, when the, the Brits were the predominant power, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, just before World War One, the world was pretty much the most globalized it had ever been. Well, World War One and two got rid of that. And then it created another reglobalization, which was the rise of the US. And now we go to a deglobalization. These things are kind of normal. Now, how fractured do we get? Does Europe fracture into, you know, into different regions does spain fracture into different countries does the Whoa, u.s fracture? is that on the table oh yeah i mean the the catalans want to separate the basques want to separate you know we see this all over those could happen or they may not happen but over geopolitical time spans they will happen because it's always happened you know italy wasn't a country and we forget this we just we look at present state and assume that's the same mm. so these things do move but it sells a lot of newspapers and eyeballs and attention span to worry over it. And most of the time, yeah. you shouldn't. Most of the time, the opportunity is there. And we want to worry about the existential crisis is very human. Again, one of those human traits is go back and read literature over the millennia. It's always about we're all going to die. It's just it's a survival instinct within humans. It's like, we're all going to die. Oh my God, everything's terrible. And yes, it is terrible and it can be terrible. If you're living in the Ukraine now, it's absolutely fucking awful. But as all of those people who came out of World War II who end up having kids, things do go on. Things do change over time. And so always out of bad times, eventually leads to good times. And it's the same with investing. That cycle is pretty common and it's a very human trait. So as you, you had this big forum, you know where um, different people are deploying their capital to, what are you doing? Are you waiting for a given opportunity? Are you um, still deploying on a, um, dollar cost averaging basis into crypto, what's your strategy right now? So I, I haven't dollar cost average generally, because, you know, I spent 30 years in financial markets. So I, I think 
hubristically that I can time them a bit better. So, you know, I have bought into big sell-offs and I'm kind of cleaning up my portfolio, sorting it out, getting ready to do that um, to try and add as much as I can. Um, in crypto specifically or Into elsewhere? crypto specifically, but I've also been buying technology stocks for the same reasons. And I don't really care about, yeah, I, I've owned bonds as a trade because bonds, once the economy weakens, bonds tend to go up in price. Um, so people, you know, you can trade things like the TLT and they go up when yields fall. So you can make some profits from doing that. Um, but generally speaking, I've been looking at these two mega themes because I really believe in them. And, you know, meanwhile, as, as we, what we talked about, I'm increasing my optionality by building businesses. So, you know, I've built an asset management business in the crypto industry. So it's um, called exponential age asset management. And we, the first product we launched is a fund of funds investing in crypto hedge funds to allow people like you and I to stay in the trade and not spook ourselves out and give it to experts as it gets most, more complicated. So building that business, I've built another business co-founded um, called Science Magic Studios. It's not really announced, so a lot of people will see this for the first time. Science Magic what Studios. Is it exactly? It's called Science Magic Studios. It's a token studio that advises, it, it tokenizes the world's largest cultural economies. So that's massive mu um, um, music stars, sports, fashion, movie, TV, and book franchises. Those are the four kind of verticals Whoa. we look at. And what, as opposed what do you to do starting, exactly? Sorry? What do you do exactly? So we have, so this is a, um, a JV between myself, Delphi Digital, Kevin Kelly, who's a co-founder, and a very good friend of mine who kind of grew up together, who was the CEO of the Guardian newspaper group. He's, he's got another business called Science Magic Inc., which is a, the kind of nexus between influencers, brands, and community. So when he was building that business, I said, look, what we're missing is tokens. So we put this together. We got some of the world's most amazing investors on our cap table and incredible advisors. It's a ludicrous group. So sciencemagicstudios.xyz. Um, and so that team builds the entire strategy and execution for tokenizing entire economies so that's from nfts so if you think about how board Ape yacht club did it so or yuga labs did it more specifically which was you know they started with nfts they start building community they add other communities they build on and then they have a social token around it and experiences um that's the hard way the easy way is if you've already got a hundred million fans yeah that's wow that's really interesting i didn't know that you were getting into that um yeah, that's why what I've been you... talking so much about this. I've been working on this for a long time. And, you know, a couple of the, the, I mean, fingers crossed, but the first two that we do will be some of the biggest things ever attempted in Web3. Wow. Um, so we'll see. Fingers what are crossed. your thoughts on regulation? Um, you know, we know regulation, you have to figure out how to do this, you know, airdropping, let the market set the price. And it's all about utility. It has to be utility and not speculation. If it's speculation, then it's a security. It has to be about creating a kind of digital economy where tokens have utility and scarcity for for that community. And have you guys engaged with regulators or are you just reading the tea leaves? Um, no, I mean, we have some of the world's best law firms working with us and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of these that already exist, obviously, these token economies. Um, and it is slowly, slowly, slowly catchy monkey. You can't go rushing into because the size of these things I mean, one of the projects is has a reach of 1.3 billion people whoa yeah 
And so, are you able to talk about it? I'm super no, curious. No, no, I can't. I can't. I'm not allowed to. When when is it supposed to launch? Well, that won't launch yet. We're just finalizing that. That this stuff takes time because you have to go small. Nobody needs to know what you're doing. You kind of develop it and then build it out into a much larger ecosystem. So. We'll see, but that's just very early stage. We're still hiring the, the final people on that. So that's the investment in myself. Real Vision, I'm retooling towards, um, well, not entirely towards, but putting these macro and crypto worlds together, which you and I have talked about in the past, because I passionately believe they're all part of the same thing. And this is a huge opportunity set. So um, doing that, buying the other stuff and trying to make sure I maintain income because without income, you're fucked. That is amazing. All right, perfect place to end. And Raul, there's where, just one more thing that we are please. doing that I think will be super relevant to this conversation. We have for a long time, like you, had a big belief that, you know, part of the democratization of financial information and intelligence that we do at Real Vision, our mission is education. And education finance is pretty crappy. Or you get overcharged by people who are nobodies creating education. And as you and I have shown in this conversation, there's a lot to get to know. You have to understand this stuff. You can't just pretend. And I want to make sure that people have the opportunity to get confidence in their own investing. The thing that even you think about is like, am I a good investor? Can I be a good investor, right? Yes, everybody can with the right tools. So we have been for a year and a half been building something at Real Vision, which is gonna be amazing, using the world's most famous investors to help mentor people through all the aspects of investing we have some courses um programming everything for all of this um we're just about to launch it so if you go to realvision.com forward slash waitlist it'll come with stupid cheap prices to start but we're even going to disrupt the pricing of with this is done because a proper course costs a lot of money this is not this is something quite groundbreaking wow it's amazing, man. The content you put out is really, really extraordinary. I know I am super grateful for it. I'm super grateful for your time. Thank you again so much for coming on. I educate myself to death uh, whenever you and I get a chance to, to talk. So uh, it's amazing. I love it as always. I re really enjoyed the conversations. No, same. All right, everybody. Speaking of things you will love, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.